with unified memory architecture, sometimes it's kind of hard to understand what that actually means. And so certainly it means shared memory, and that's what most people think of. But what people don't understand sometimes is that even when you have shared memory on some integrated systems, you still have different formats of how things are represented depending on where they are in memory. So like video or images or things like that, you know, not everything is just a, a bit blit of moving memory from point A to point B in most systems. In our unified memory architecture, that is all consistent. When you're working on a CPU task and then a GPU task and moving that around memory, that's all the same file for, or not file, but memory mm -hmm. formats that we architect because we own the whole system. So we can make sure you're not copying, you're always reusing that same memory all the time. So the sure. developers thought stuff that you may have written the same one line of code actually meant the background copy is now actually just handing over a pointer over to a different task. And so you're seeing things that used to feel slow, like boom, all of a sudden that operation happened literally instantly because those things in the background weren't needing to happen. So, so it's not... It's not just an instruction set. You know, it's, it's not like, hey, you had to write these assembly instructions, now write these assembly instructions. The way your software runs is fundamentally different, and it's really exciting. So you're saying we shouldn't be worried about that 16 gigabyte RAM limitation. Yeah, you're not copying, right? So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're saying. Don't, just forget about it, Jared. Let it go. Let it go. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at launchdarkly.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. What up, friends? You might not be aware, but we've been partnered with Linode since 2016. That's a long time ago. Way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at changelog.com, Linode was there to help us, and we are so grateful. Fast forward several years now, and Linode is still in our corner, behind the scenes helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there. We trust Linode. They keep it fast, and they keep it simple. Get $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Again, $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Local Podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the world of software. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at ChangeLog. We have a big show for you today. We're talking about the future of the Mac. Coming off of Apple's One More Thing event to launch the Apple M1 chip and M1-powered Macs, we have a two-part show for you. Part one features Tim Treemstra from Apple. Tim is the Product Marketing Manager for Developer Technologies. He's been at Apple for 15 years. And the team he manages is responsible for developer tools and technologies, including Xcode, Swift Playgrounds, the Swift language, and Unix tools. Part two features Ken Case, founder and CEO of the Omni Group, who is well known for their Omni productivity suite, including Omni Focus, Omni Plan, Omni Graffle, and Omni Outliner, all of which are developed for iOS and the Mac. Here we go. All right, we are here to talk about the future of the Mac, fresh off of the One More Thing event in November. This future was teased back at WWDC, and in fact, we've known there's been Apple Silicon-based Macs on their way. They were promised to come before the end of the year, and now we, they are here, and we are here with Tim Treemstra. You've been at Apple for a very long time, 
Tim. And I'm curious, how, where does this announcement, this transition rank for you in kind of the pantheon of big announcements? You had the original PowerPC to Intel transition. You had the iPhone SDK. There's been a lot of big announcements over the years. Where does this one rank? Uh, it's, it's kind of funny because you look at it both as like the work you have to do and also as somebody that is just a lover of products. And as a lover of products, this one's at the top of my list. I'm a, I'm a Mac user. Uh, I started my life as a software developer and still like to do that as a hobby. And so having the Mac take this enormous jump is is just about the most exciting thing that I've, I've dealt with on here. And like you said, there's, there's been a lot over the years. Um, you know, from a technical uh, issue, it's, it's quite a bit easier than most of them have been uh, in certain respects. But just from the general excitement, and I hear the same thing from our developer community that um, they just feel like this enormous uplifting about their love for the Mac being like rejuvenated. And, and so there's a real, real high level of excitement right now. Yeah, just to give a, a bit more extension to your background, over a decade at Apple, transitioned to the Intel-based Macs, which is huge. That was a, a the previous gigantic leap forward, as you say uh, in your announcements. Launched the iPhone SDK, the uh, the opportunity to launch the App Store, and then obviously Swift in open source, which has been just tremendous as well. So uh, you've got a lot of history behind you in terms of you know what developers really care about that Apple has done. And that's a big deal, what you've done at Apple. Yeah, it, it's been a really fun ride, and it's something that I think we learn quite a bit from at each step. It was funny is um, I think everybody compares this transition to the PowerPC one, and I was lucky enough to be here 15 odd years ago when we did that. And and I think it's it's apt in that it's the Mac and it was an architecture change and such. But in so many ways, it's a completely different world than when that happened. Um, you know, for one thing, you know, almost no Mac developers at that time had worked with Intel. So for them, it was a fundamentally big shift. Um, they weren't really familiar with it. There was a lot more technical difficulty. There was Indianness to deal with. Um, people had been making the 64-bit move recently with PowerPC. Then the Intel was going to be 32-bit initially. So there was some different things going on then. Um, it, it was just... And, uh, bluntly, at the time, most people weren't Xcode users, uh, so it was, a, mm -hmm. it, was, it was a big tooling change for a lot of people. Uh, the thing that's funny that we're having now is a comparison. Um, I actually just uh, talked with Ken Case over at Omni uh, the other day, and his comment was like, it's like coming home. Um, Mac developers very often have been sharing code with iOS for years and years and years already. They're using the same tooling. Um, it, it almost feels like uh, closing the loop, like, okay, the one last thing that wasn't totally Apple in my ecosystem is now Apple. And they're just really excited about it. It, it shows a commitment and it also makes it so that they just have one less thing to worry about. It's definitely a big commitment and a, a huge transition, a huge amount of work and something y'all have been investing in for probably a very long time. Why why do this? You said close the loop, get on all of our own stuff. We know that you tout the software hardware integration and the advantages of that. But what was so bad or so problematic with Intel chips and where you were that it was worth this heavy investment? I, I think a lot of times you want to look at it. Um, I, I think there's a phrasing I've, I've, I've seen people use, and I use it myself sometimes. It's like, are you running away from something or are you running to something? And I think we always run to something. Um, we saw an opportunity to make amazing products. Every time we iterated on our CPUs, we saw what we could do. We saw the integration we could make. Um, and then we were able to do that with the Mac was just an opportunity. Um, we thought we could make really, really good Macs. 
And I think when people get their hands on these Macs, they'll see exactly why we did. From a developer standpoint, um, first of all, I think they're going to actually love having these Macs. Um, and then when they do, they're going to want their software to be running at absolutely maximum speed. Uh, it was kind of funny as... You know, I, I knew I was going to talk with you, and, and we had, a lot of my engineer friends have been telling me about you know how their experiences with these with these new Macs are internally, and so I, I took mine and just just kind of on a lark, uh, I took one of my bigger projects and I just hit like Command B clean, Command B clean, Command B clean, like just constantly built on on an, actually it was a MacBook Air, uh, and kept it on my lap, and the thing stayed cool like the whole time, and I must have done you know, like a half a hundred builds. Um, and so just just simple things like that are going to get developers so excited that they're going to see the opportunity. And, and I really just think it won't even be requiring any convincing. People are just going to be so excited to move to these new platform. Was this example your M1 chip? Just curious. Yeah, that was with an M1 chip. Okay. You said it was a MacBook Pro or a, a MacBook Th- This Air. was actually an Air. And, and you've, nice. you've seen the statistics on the, the MacBook Pro, um, which I think uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about the detail on. But basically, it's this enormous C++ project we benchmark. Um, and uh, it was getting almost three times the build performance as far as just the throughput to get the whole build done. But the statistic that uh, Shruti said that I think was almost you know, a little bit missed when I was watching Twitter that I thought was the bigger one was it's about three times as fast to compile, but then you got four times as many builds on a charge. And you can think a little bit about what that means is that we didn't just throw three times the energy to get three times the performance out. We actually got, had to throw less energy through the CPU to get that same performance. So you're actually able to get more work done on that battery charge while still getting your builds faster. So maybe you can settle a bet for us, Tim. Just before the show, we were talking about the new lineup and are, are they really targeted at developers? And I said, well, surely the MacBook Pro is, even though it's a 13-inch, it's not going to be the most powerful laptop, but it's a Pro. I said, the MacBook Air, it's really your most consumer-level, entry-level laptop. Would you actually say, developers, you can you can do your life, you can do your work on, on the new MacBook Air? Or would you say... Go for the higher performance one with the fans and everything else. Well, every developer needs to make their own choice, obviously. And they're, they're, the things with the MacBook Pro is that you've got even longer battery life and it can get even faster in cases. But like the MacBook Air is an enormous jump versus the previous generation. So I think a lot of times people have to reset what they expect and what, they're, what they want out of their laptop. There is absolutely no reason you cannot do really serious development on a MacBook Air. I think that's an amazing uh, statement, and I think it's absolutely true. Um, but I, I do think a lot of developers would probably want to go for the uh, MacBook Pro, uh, just because it's, you know, it's a slightly elevated uh, bit that you know, is worth it for a developer. The other major thing that we're hearing from our community and that we're thinking as well, and I think Adam thinks this as well, is we see the new machines. I don't remember jumping ahead here, but let's just jump ahead and do it. And we get excited. And then there's something about the maximum 16 gigabytes of RAM on the new machines. And it's kind of like, you know, how many Chrome tabs can I really run (laughs) with only 16 gigabytes of RAM? We're used to having much more. And maybe it doesn't matter because of the system on the chip and unified memory stuff. You can speak to some of that. But is this going to be a major holdup? Maybe not for regular consumers, but for software developers and video people and, you know, the pro customer that you guys serve? 
I, I think that, again, that is something that each individual developer has to make their decision for. We still offer uh, the MacBook Pro outlines that have 32 gig of RAM available on them. Um, I, I, my personal belief is that many, many projects would be more than fine to operate on a 16 gig uh, machine. And then the portability and the speed that they get in those machines uh, is, is certainly a um, awesome product for many, many software developers, um, especially app developers where, um, you know, apps tend to be a little smaller size. You spend, tend to spend a little bit more of your time doing incremental builds, which are fantastic about throughput. Um, and the build time is, is really, really great. Um, so I, I really think like any product, uh, each individual developer has to make the choice. But my experience is that these are fantastic developer machines. And, and the fact that you get this great portability and really great performance is, is going to be an, an enormous uh, a benefit to many developers. So considering that you spent what seems like the majority of your career at Apple interfacing with engineering and interfacing with developers, what is it that you know, considering the different announcements you mentioned that you've been through, the different eras of Apple, what is it about this one in particular, the hardware, the software, this integration, this new, uh, this new leap forward, I suppose, for, you know, the future of Mac and the first Apple made chip, you know, Big Sur, all this that was announced. What is the thing that you think is the most important for developers to take away from, you know, I suppose the one more thing event, but this time for Apple right now? I think the biggest thing that I, I really want developers to take away is just the excitement that Apple has for the Mac. Um, I, I think people have to understand how much we love the product, how much we love using the Mac, and the effort that went into this, this um, transition, which you, know, you hinted at earlier, is not insignificant. This is an enormous number of engineers working extremely hard for a really long period of time, and yet I don't think I've ever seen the level of excitement that I'm seeing with this. And so um, as a result, I think as a developer, like, you know, you have a built-in Unix, you have all these types of things with the Mac, and now you have Apple Silicon coming to this product. I, I think I really want people to, to perceive the excitement that we have when they use these products. I, I think when you see the Big Sur redesign, when you see the instant wake, all these things, you're just like, wow, this is not what... This is not what I remember. This is this is an amazing sure. advancement. Mm -hmm. I think Instant Wake is one of those little things that, like, uh, it was kind of a fun little gag in the in the keynote. But it's one of those things. The first yeah. time you the first time you say, "I have a laptop," and it turns on the same way my iPad does, you're like, "Wow, that's that's pretty nice." So the boot up process isn't there anymore. It, it, you know, whenever I turn on my machine, and you know, I know that uh, a few a few laptops back, essentially, it became whenever you open the lid it would begin to boot up. So you're saying that there is no boot up process anymore in an instant on, or is that what that meant? Or help me understand better what happens. It, it works a lot like an iPad does in that um, you, you, a lot of people have gotten used to the idea of like um, shallow and deep sleep where, you know, you close the lid and it doesn't really sleep until a little bit of time passes and then it like sure. really goes to sleep and then it, it does all this other stuff. Th th that really isn't what's happening anymore. So you have this much like your iPad, where it's, it goes into sleep and it's saving a huge amount of energy, but it doesn't need to go into a deep sleep that requires it effectively to reboot. Um, and so it's always in that like shallow sleep state. It's always ready when it, when it comes back. It's not just turning the monitor on. The, the computer is totally ready to go. 
is that taking advantage of specific things in the M1 chip, like the low energy cores or something like that? Yeah, exactly. The chip has been architected specifically for this because this is what people have expected on an iPhone. This is what people have expected on an iPad for forever. And, you know, we make both operating systems, right? So we can certainly make it available for the Mac as well. I'm curious, you have this huge amount of effort we were talking about, right? All hands on board doing this thing many years and you have these big events and historically they've been at live, you know, thousands of people in the crowd. I know that Apple engineers and and employees get to attend the, the keynotes. And here we have the state of the world we're in right now. Is it somewhat bittersweet because you've been putting all this effort in and here you have these announcements and they're very well done, but they're pre-recorded and everybody's watching them from their own machine at home or in the office. We're all isolated. There's probably no high fives like there used to be. There's probably no hugs. I mean, I imagine like it's like when you win the big game is when the finally your thing that you've been working on gets announced to the world. Is it bittersweet because of the quarantine and whatnot? I wouldn't call it bittersweet, but I definitely get where you're coming at. I mean, ha- sitting in like the the theater at WWDC when we got to announce it would have been amazing. Being able to do more of that in person now would have been amazing, and I think we all all miss that a little bit. But um, it's always been about making the product, releasing it into the world, and then knowing people have it, right? And then knowing people are actually enjoying it. And I'll watch Twitter like anybody else and see people excited and such. And I can't wait for them to actually ship next week because we'll have this next wave of people actually experiencing the product. Um, but yeah, I don't think bittersweet is there. There's, there's that element that's missing, but it's also pretty exciting. Well, like you said, it is ultimately about getting these things out into the world and into people's hands. And As we record this, Big Sur is going to get into our hands tomorrow, but as people listen to this, it's already out there. It can be downloaded, installed, etc. And Big Sur is really kind of a tandem announcement or tandem release to the Apple Silicon chips, and it's built kind of around and for. Tell us about Big Sur and how it integrates into this new product line. Yeah, I, I think the you know the thing we said is that it's it's built from the you know down to its core for uh, the new silicon, and I think. Uh, the thing to take away is how much code Apple has been able to share for years and years across our platforms. As we have, um, you know, these frameworks that are common, so developers have them. Um, iOS was built on a Darwin foundation that we we had from from iOS, and so the thing that was really neat with Big Sur is a chance to actually have all that work kind of realized back to the Mac. Um, so, like I mentioned, the instant wake, you know, that's, that's code obviously we understood and we were able to modify and upgrade it for the Mac. Um, now you have uh, iPhone and iPad apps able to run on the Mac, which is kind of a fun story where, you know, people have actually seen us develop this in the open and not fully get to see it realized until just now when we did Mac Catalyst three years ago for our own apps and then we opened it up for third parties so that they could do it and then we advanced it even further so that we, and then we used it ourselves for uh, iMess- or for the Messages app and for uh, Maps app. And now by building those frameworks across the platforms, uh, because you're now in the exact same architecture where you could just do a recompile before for Catalyst and then you'd see what it would look like on a Mac, but you had to do the recompile because it was Intel. It's literally that same framework now running on Apple Silicon and the result is that the app can run without you doing anything. And so people start to understand like, oh, I, I get what you're doing. And then Big Sur just felt like this culmination of all this work and with the Apple Silicon where it was okay, now we have Mac OS 11. We have 
the next generation of what we think the future of the Mac looks like because of all these technologies coming together. And the redesign, you know, it, it has a lot of these uh, things that we've learned over time as far as space usage and uh, just the general usability we've learned from all these different platforms and makes it feel much more common, like they're all one family now. So you buy a Mac, you buy an iPad, you buy a phone, iPhone, everything really feels um, like it was built by the same people with the same uh, ethos about what a computing experience should be optimized for each individual platform. So what about folks who are not on Apple Silicon, which is everybody at this point, right? Every Apple machine that's <laughs> shipped in the last 15 years has been Intel-based. So here we are with a bunch of established Intel-based Macs out there. Is there things in Big Sur that just won't be exciting to them or, or do we just miss out on some features? Like, are there actual explicit features that you're like, this is only for M1 and beyond and this is for Intel? Well, some of the things that the computers can do, like the Instant Wake and running the iPhone and iPad apps are contingent on the hardware that's in these new Macs. But one of the things that's really cool is that Apple has pioneered and continued to lead the industry with this universal concept where we've had universal apps for well over a decade. And so what it, what we do is with the tooling and with universal apps, we're able to make it really easy for developers to support both Apple Silicon and Intel. So people with Intel Macs will continue to get amazing software um, and it's really easy for developers to continue to support them. Um, it, it's something that I think a lot of people don't really understand is how, how perfected that is, is that when we had the PowerPC and Intel, that was kind of like the signature time people looked at the universal apps. But over the last 15 years, we've done the 32 to 64-bit transition multiple times. Um, you had iOS moving to 64-bit. In fact, in iOS, uh, we had a V6 instruction set, then we had a V7 instruction set, and there was derivatives of the V7 instruction set. There was a time when we were actually building three versions of the binary and putting them in the app. And users never noticed because it just worked. And the App Store would even thin out the versions of the binary that came to your device so you didn't lose space. So this, this transition concept is something that um, you know we've really had working extremely well for a really, really long time. And Xcode for the developer tools does this for you automatically. When you open up Xcode 12.2 .2, and you open up your Mac project, we'll convert it to a universal and next thing you know, you're building Intel and, and Apple Silicon, and you didn't really do anything. Um, and so users are going to reap those benefits for years and years. What about folks who aren't inside Xcode, or maybe they have some legacy stuff? Is there going to be some transitions? I know that we saw Adobe, you know, they'll have Photoshop ready next, early next year. So obviously there's some work they have to do there. Are there major lifts for anybody? I know it's easy. It's the happy path looks pretty happy, like open Xcode, rebuild, you're good to go. But surely there's some hurdles for some folks. Yeah, I mean, every project is a little different. Uh, what we generally see is that if people completely own their own code, so they have all the source code, they can rebuild it, um, usually within days, they are up and running. I, I talked with, uh, like I said, some of the developers here recently, pretty much everybody's told us that's the easiest transition they've, they've had to deal with. Um, and so they're just excited about, you know, doing the transition a few days or a week and they move on. We, we do understand that some people pull in third-party code, um, and if that third-party code is just in binary, they, they have this dependency tree where they wait for that to get done. Uh, we introduced new things uh, called uh, XE frameworks that makes it easier for people that do vend third-party code to vend it in multiple platforms, just like a universal app 
it's essentially a universal framework that you can ship. Um, so it's become a lot easier to do that. Um, and then there are a few ex, you know, edge case things where people were writing to very specific Intel instructions. Uh, there's some floating point math or something like that. Um, very, very uncommon, but there are a couple people that may have a little bit of assembly language that's using that and that, that'll do a little bit of work. But we've worked with big and small developers and everybody's telling us that this is about the easiest transition they've ever had to deal with. And the fact of the matter is, I think you'll be seeing a lot of software in the App Store that's universal very, very quickly, uh, which will attest to how good it is. I think I saw um, you know, Visual Studio Code announced that they are already building uh, you know, an Apple Silicon version on their nightlies. They tweeted about that the other day. Uh, you saw the Adobe announcement. All the Omni apps will be in the store uh, at launch. Um, really, it's been an extremely good pickup. What about tooling in the open source world? We got a lot of people in our community asking about, I suppose, the the help, the support for open source. You know, one in particular is like Homebrew or other apps like that or projects like that that need sort of support or access as opposed to documentation to be able to run on Big Sur. What, are, what does Apple do? I suppose now that you're in Swift and you're more at least in line with open source and have that empathy, what, uh, what internal things have happened or are available to open source developers to prepare for Big Sur? Well, we did work with a number of open source projects to give them access to the DTK unit. So a lot of people have been working on them for a while. Um, there's many, many homebrew projects that have already been supporting um, Apple Silicon. You can run homebrew on Apple Silicon. Um, so that is a big hurdle for a lot of people that is already overcome. Um, obviously, there will be long tails of projects that not all of them are there sure. on day one, but we haven't even shipped Max yet. So um, I expect it to come pretty fast. We ourselves... Uh, contributed to dozens of open source projects with patches. Um, we've uh, you know got everything from machine learning to uh, to databases to all the different things that you would imagine in an open source development stack. Uh, we know, for instance, the Mac is incredibly popular with web developers. So the vast majority of the the popular web development stacks uh, have already announced or have even produced builds for Apple Silicon. So we think it'll be something that goes uh, goes pretty quickly. So this is undoubtedly a a large change and called out by the fact that you're going to OS 11 now, right? No longer OS 10. So Big Sur is a very big change. And we can see that reason why, because the underpinnings are like completely different, right? The end user facing features, however, when you look at like the top of the line features that are coming in Big Sur, it looks like a nice operating system update. There's definitely some good stuff in there. It looks more like an evolution than a revolution, except for one thing. The change to run native iOS apps on Mac now, that could be a revolution, right? That could change the game quite a bit. That could change the way the Mac feels over the next couple of years. Have you run a lot of iOS apps like as you've been building this and been looking at builds? And how does that feel? What does that look like? Yeah, it, it, it is going to be, I think, one of the biggest revolutions through this process is that, you know, the, the iOS, you know, iPad, iPhone, the App Store uh, has the most vibrant app ecosystem in the world. It's, it's, it's hard to argue that, that point. And so now the Mac gets to tap into that with hundreds of thousands of new apps available as soon as you crack open your new Mac, which is pretty exciting. Uh, personally, the, the example I always use because it's like 
something I see all day long is um, I have a baby monitor camera and I can now run that app and it resizes and does all these great things. And so I have a young child, I can watch her sleeping when she's taking a nap and make sure she's okay. And you know, the thing about that is that app vendor made an iOS app. Um, you know, clearly it makes perfect sense to have it on your phone or an iPad. And that developer, I could totally understand that they didn't have a mindset where they felt that they needed to make a, a unique Mac app. It's just most people have a phone or an iPad, so I get it. Like that's 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 their environment. But now, as a Mac user with you know a Mac that I'm working on, the fact that I can pop that open anytime I want is awesome. Like it, it's nothing but a huge win for me. And you know, there's games and there's other apps of that nature. You know, even simple things like setting up an appliance or something like that that some somebody might make an iOS app for. Like they, they would probably never make a Mac app for it. But now it's also on your Mac. And how great is it that that it's there. So uh, we're really excited about that ecosystem opportunity. We also think um, with how easy it is to then bring a Mac app over with Catalyst so you can start adding Mac specific features, what'll happen is developers will see that there's, there's all these Mac users out there. And they'll say like, well, they love my app. I can really just check a box in Catalyst and start making a Mac specific app for those users and make something even better um, with very Mac specific features if I want to. And we think a lot of developers that maybe didn't think about it before will have that user base, like all of a sudden raise their hand and say, I like your app. And they'll make you know, mm -hmm. their apps even better for the Mac as time goes on. So the developer doesn't do that. Does it have a strange Uncanny Valley feel to it? Like, is there no menus? Is there no keyboard shortcuts? And like, does it feel like it's like an iOS app and it just happens to exist here? Maybe as you run the simulator kind of a feel? Or does it feel more native than that? Well, first of all, they all do get a menu bar. So you get hide and you get those types of features, um, you know, built in, um, you know, all your task switchers and all that kind of stuff work like you would imagine. It's just a window on your Mac screen. And then one of the things that's kind of fun is that yeah, everything about this release feels a little bit like, hey, I've been working on this in secret for a long time. Now you really understand what we're doing. Um, mm. you, you, know, you may have seen that uh, at WWDC this year, we announced uh, that there's new sidebars for iPad. Well, those sidebars look like Mac sidebars with that same exact physical binary when it opens on a Mac. Um, we've been adding multitasking to iPad, which uses this thing called size classes. So you define your user interface. Like what if, what if I'm multitasking an iPad and it's like half the screen size or it slides over? Well, that makes it so that the windows are resizable when they're on the Mac. So now you've got a resizable app on the Mac, which makes perfect sense on the Mac. And it feels like it's going to scale properly. Um, you get uh, a new keyboard interface that we added when it came with a magic trackpad. Uh, or Magic Keyboard, I'm sorry, uh, for the iPad, that adds some new API so you could make really cool games and things like that with a really precise keyboard API. Well, now you've got even better keyboard API when it runs on the Mac as well. And so you can make really, really rich iPad apps that will also be really rich Mac apps. Um, and so the uncanny valley, like it, a lot of it just depends on, did you make an app that is best practices today? Because if it is, mm -hmm. it'll look like a really good Mac app too. Now, if you didn't do anything, if you're one of those people that makes an app, you know, basically I said it's a rectangle and that's all it is and it doesn't resize real well in other ways, well, it'll probably have similar attributes. Um, but I think that's something that's been so exciting about the platform in the recent years is these apps have just been getting more and more and more powerful on iPad and now they're taking the leap up to the Mac. Yeah, it seems a lot like that, actually. When, when you took an iPhone 
you know, or an iOS application and was able to use it on iPad, for example, where when that when that switch happened, when it when it became available, similar to that, where you had this whole new opportunity for new users, an extended interface, very similar to a larger screen like a Mac might have, not exactly a Mac, but very similar. Uh, it seems a lot like that era, like the same things you learned then or the same things the developer went through in that point might be similar or true today, like it is now. Yeah, exactly. Like when we did size classes a number of years ago, um, you know, there's a very obvious reason for is that we came out with larger phones, right? And so by adopting that design pattern in your app, when we came out with a new sized phone, uh, your app looked great. Like you didn't do anything. It was using a pattern that allowed your app to scale properly. And so these are the things that we've learned over the years that are now getting applied to more and more of our software stack. And the Mac is reaping huge benefits from that. So how does somebody get their iOS app on the Mac? Do they just put it in the Mac App Store or just check a box when they're submitting it to the App Store? So there is a place on App Store Connect, which is the the like uh, place where you manage your storefront for your apps. Um, and in App Store Connect, there's a checkbox. So the developer has control whether or not it's available on the Mac or not. Now, we know there are some apps that maybe use a gyroscope or um, use really complicated multi-touch gestures where there's not really an equivalent. And so they might want to opt out and say, well, I, I don't want my app there. But for the most part, we think most people will want their app to be available. Um, the other thing is that this will probably get a lot of people thinking like, wow, I, I should make an alternate control mechanism. You know, uh, If I add keyboard support instead of just the multi-touch, I could have a pretty cool experience on the Magic Keyboard on an iPad too. Um, and so we, we think people will actually start looking at their apps a little differently. But to, to make it available, it's, it's literally a checkbox. What in particular does M1 offer in this world, this, this new native app world that's, that's available? Like what in particular about M1 should get developers excited? Well, certainly a lot of the benefits they've seen already on iPhone and iPad are now there. So you've got like, you know, we, we've talked about a number of the, uh, the features, but there's a lot of really low level stuff too. So for instance, um, just some of the number of instructions that are necessary to perform very low level commands are less because we've been able to optimize for the actual silicon for years. So um an object in, uh, retain and release, which is like basically reference counting, um, can mm -hmm. be about four or five times faster uh, to perform this very common operation of like instantiating and cleaning up uh, objects. That's going to be something that you see on an M1 that at the very lowest level, everything is running a little faster. Um, some of the other things that you, you'll see is with unified memory architecture, sometimes it's kind of hard to understand what that actually means. And so Certainly it means shared memory, and that's what most people think of. But what people don't understand sometimes is that even when you have shared memory on some integrated systems, you still have different formats of how things are represented depending on where they are in memory. So like video or images or things like that, you know, not everything is just a, a bit blit of moving memory from point A to point B in most systems. In our unified memory architecture, that is all consistent. When you're working on a CPU task and then a GPU task and moving that around memory, that's all the same file for, or not file, but memory mm -hmm. formats that we architect because we own the whole system. So we can make sure you're not copying, you're always reusing that same memory all the time. So as a sure. developer, th stuff that you may have written the same one line of code actually meant the background copy is now actually just handing over a pointer over to a different task. And so you're seeing things that used to feel slow, like boom, all of a sudden that operation happened literally instantly because those things in the background weren't needing to happen. So, so it's not 
it's not just an instruction set. You know, it's, it's not like, hey, you had to write these assembly instructions, now write these assembly instructions. The way your software runs is fundamentally different, and it's really exciting. So you're saying we shouldn't be worried about that 16 gigabyte RAM limitation. Yeah, you're not copying, right? So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you're saying. Don't, just forget about it, Jared. Let it go. Let it go. Well, we've all been hypothesizing behind the scenes to like why cap at 16 gigs. And, you know, when you go unified like you're talking about, it seems to make sense because the formats are unified to keep using the word unified because it's cool. But, you know, when you have that, you have less copying. So the assumption from a layman's perspective, I'm not a chip expert by any means, but I have some logic in me at least. And the logic says if you're not copying as much, you need less. That's good logic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not in the I'm not the chip expert enough to say I I would predict X amount of memory is different or something, but certainly from a performance standpoint, um, and certainly you know when you talk about like heap creation and things like that, all those sorts of things that a developer thinks about as far as you know copies on write and like when do we have protection on this and when is the thread safety, all those kind of things get a little bit easier and a little bit less overhead, and it's it really does pay off in all these different little places through your software stack. So help me understand how Catalyst fits in. You've mentioned it a couple times, but when we talk about getting the native iOS apps onto the Mac. We talk about the Uncanny Valley, features for Mac, like does it work with multi-gesture, et cetera. Let's say I, I'm your camera operator, iOS developer, and I just have my, my iPhone app, and it works on Big Sur just fine. Um, but let's say I want to adopt some of those more advanced features. Like I want it when you hit Command N, it opens a new window, or whatever it is. Maybe that one already works, but... You're, you're with me. Do I need to adopt Catalyst to get in on that action? Or do I, I can do all that myself? Or do I have to start with Catalyst to have a Catalyst app? I don't really understand how Catalyst fits into the picture for existing apps. I get it for brand new apps. You start a Catalyst-based app and you go. But what about existing apps? Well, if it's an existing app that's only for iOS and, and iPad, it's, it's not really a Catalyst app. We just call that an iPhone right. or iPad app. And then we have all these nice APIs about multitasking and multi-window and such an iPad that you could adopt and that will improve your Mac app. The moment you say, I want to build something that's just for the Mac, at that point, the Mac App Store actually has its own apps, right? So think of it like this, is if you build an iPhone or an iPad app, you check a box, and now it's also available to you on the Mac App Store. In fact, there's a nice little tab that we have that separates the um, you know, Mac-only apps versus the iPhone and iPad apps that are, that are available. But you want to add that Mac-specific feature. As a developer, you say, okay, I want to turn this code base, which looks like iPhone iPad code base, and you say, I want to make this a Catalyst app. And what that will do is it will literally produce a different app target for the Mac. Now, every okay. line of code didn't change, right? But now mm -hmm. you've got your own Mac target where you can start adding new source files, new behaviors. You say that these new source files and these new behaviors are targeted to just that Mac deliverable. And then you can get all these cool new Mac-specific features that you put in there. And the cool thing about that is that you can then do things like Swift UI or, or other API into that Mac app that, only, you know, that is specific to that version of the Mac app. Seems like the video games are going to be the first ones that really take advantage of this. Because why not, right? Like, I have this awesome game on iPad, and it's just like, check this box. As long as it's a traditional iOS-style game where it's like a single click, right? Like, you're tap, tap, tap kind of a game and not a gyroscope kind of a game. You could just put it on the Mac, and the Mac's going to have thousands more games in Big Sur than it did 
before. Yeah, we, we, we use the Among Us game uh, as an example through there because it's, it's a really fun game that isn't about incredibly intricate controls. It's really about the social aspect of having this game. And you can really just kind of tap around the world when you're playing it, like go here, go here. And that control mechanism worked great on the Mac. And that's a that's absolutely a game that people like. I mean, the game is going crazy. I mean, people are really absolutely loving that game. But now putting it on your Mac, you know, that just means that it's it's you know one less uh, device that you have to say, oh, I'm going to switch over to my iPad to play this game. I can sit here on my Mac and and keep playing. I just would love to convey how much you know we are all super excited about what this is. This is a, a multi-year effort um, that we're finally getting to reveal to the world and. You know, I'm just really excited about next week when we start getting all the reviews and everything, when people actually get the hardware in their hands, because it's funny when you see hardware announcement, you see this is 20% faster and this is 30% faster and people get really excited about that. And you don't usually see 20, 30% faster all that often year after year. And I almost feel like people didn't fully understand that we said 3X, 11X, um, like that's that's hard to comprehend until you actually use it. And um, I'm just super duper excited that people will soon be able to actually experience that and see something that is literally three times as fast to compile um, what that means to their lives. What's up, friends? Have you ever seen a problem and thought to yourself, I bet I could do that better? Our friends at Equinix agree. Equinix is the world's digital infrastructure company, and they've been connecting and powering the digital world for over 20 years now. They just launched a new product called Equinix Metal. It's built from the ground up to empower developers with low latency, high performance infrastructure anywhere. We'd love for you to try it out and give them your feedback. Visit info.equinixmetal.com changelog to get $500 in free credit to play with, plus a rad t-shirt. Again, info.equinixmetal.com changelog, get $500 in free credit. Equinix Metal, build freely. We're here with Ken Case, the CEO of the Omni Group. And Ken, when I think about Mac apps and I think about people who make Mac apps, I think about your company. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> the Indian Mac dev is still alive, still kicking, still creating and making awesome apps. And when I think about someone who's in that space, it's definitely you. Now, I will admit, I didn't know Ken Case. I knew the Omni Group. Sure. No, so that's there's great. at least that. <laughs> that works. Tell us about your company, what you've been doing and, and like your desire for the Mac platform. Sure. Well, a little bit about our company. We, as you've already mentioned, we've been on the Mac quite a while, a long time. A long time. We actually yeah. started on the Next platform. And maybe I should first mention what we do. We build productivity apps. At least that's what we focus on now over the last 20 years or so. Uh, but in the past, you know, 30 years ago, our goal was just to try to help this platform succeed. The Next platform, we were really inspired by uh, all of the technologies that went into it and we loved programming for it and we wanted to see it succeed. So we did everything we could from consulting contracts to building a web browser to porting games to try to help that platform succeed. And when Next was acquired by Apple, of course, then that passion translated into our passion from the Mac and Mac OS X. Right. That's a long time you've been involved with Apple. And so so far back that like you have uh, similar roots, the same roots, because you, you grew together, basically. Yeah, we know... 
Uh, I mean, I guess we've been involved in a lot of the history from at least one side of the equation. There were sure all these teams that were on the Apple side of it that we we had to meet and learn sure. about things like QuickTime back in <laughs> twenty years ago. <laughs> but yeah, it's been uh, an exciting set of transitions. Yeah, so this is a big one, but it's not the first one you've been through. Uh, the the big one I mentioned with Tim on the other part of the call was the switch to Intel, but that wasn't even your first transition. That was your second transition, right? <laughs> I mean, you've been you've been doing this a few times, so this is not your second rodeo. It's like your third rodeo when it comes to Mac transitions. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just I've been thinking back on transitions and. 80s, uh, the 80s were full of a bunch of transitions, right? Like it was a crazy time where we had uh, 6502 CPUs on one end with 8-bit processors. And then we had uh, things like I was uh, involved in working with a cyber mainframe on the other end that had like 60 bits, which, you know, we hadn't even standardized on ASCII yet or on how many bits were in a byte (laughs) or in a word. Um, Wild Wild West back then. Still trying to figure it out, right? Still trying to figure out what a platform looked like. (laughs) Yeah, so... When we settled down and decided, well, the next platform is what we wanted to do. This is after uh, having explored, you know, maybe 20 other platforms from the Apollo to this SGI, um, all of these crazy different things that were going on in the 80s. And in the 90s, things started settling down quite a bit. And we saw Windows really start to dominate on the uh, work desktops. Right. And we saw the Mac dominating a lot, I think, on the creative side of things. Right. And you have a whole suite of these productivity tools. Probably millions of lines of code at this point. I mean, how, do you know how many lines of code you are in charge of, roughly? I do not know that. I could start a <laughs> word count in the background while we continue <laughs> this conversation. I think it's safe to say um, millions, right? I would say maybe roughly more like a million. We, okay. we do try to prune the code from time to time and clean out the old code that uh, that can now be written in more efficient ways. Right, right, right. But yeah, maybe I should mention, uh, so the products that we have now are OmniPlan, which is project management. It's like building a timeline of things. Mm-hmm. OmniFocus, which is more like executing on that timeline. So it's keeping track of your own tasks and, and doing something. We have OmniOutliner, which lets you break ideas down into an outline of, of thoughts and so on. And then we have... OmniGraffle, which I think is one of the apps that we're probably best known for, which is mm-hmm. our visual uh, diagramming application. Absolutely. I mean, I can remember back, uh, it, it's been a bit since I've done one of these, so it's not um, sort of aging myself to some degree, but I can remember the first time I'd like laid out a workflow for an application. And every time I did it, you know, since then, it's been through OmniGraffle, laying out how things work, different flows, different workflows. Like if it hadn't been for OmniGraffle, uh, and, and I suppose even more than that, like the love for developers and the love for the Mac platform, because that's really what it was. It was like, this is a day, I could say this is probably like 10 years ago, where the desire was high on that side. Like the the design function, the you know the look, the feel of a Mac app was clear. Like building a native or even a company around building Mac apps was very much a cool thing. And it still is to these days, but like this was like early days. So it was like new, you know, new cool. And had been a huge fan of OmniGraffle and, and uh, the apps you guys have created. Mm-hmm. So, oh, well, thank old you. school user, old school <laughs> user. Yeah, there was something really distinctive about Mac apps in the early two thousands, as Aqua was introduced. Yeah. And all your windows had pinstripes on them. <laughs> you know, right. Some of those yeah. things fell by the wayside over oh, yeah. time. Style change. But if you really wanted to be a modern app, you could tell which which apps were modern and which ones weren't. Let's put it that there way. There you go. Right. 
Well, you made it. So these, this suite of tools and you've been pruning along the way and changing, I'm sure the market has pushed you in certain tool directions and other ones that maybe have gone by the wayside, but you've always had these productivity tools. They made it through the transition into Intel. And now here we are and they're all running on Intel processors. I was talking to Tim on the other part and I said, at this point, every single app, every Mac out there is now kind of a legacy Intel app, you know, (laughs) Mac, like all your hardware is still Intel hardware until it actually now they've been shipping some stuff out, so starting to change that. But what does this transition look like for your team? Like, what is what does Omni had to do to prepare? Because all of your apps are now ready for to be native M1 powered, right? Big Sur apps. They're all ready for this transition. So what what all went into that? Sure. Well, so you asked earlier, what's different about this transition than earlier? And yeah. Some of those earlier transitions, like from M68K to. Uh, to PowerPC or from PowerPC to Intel, we were really going to a platform that we hadn't been on before. In this case, I feel like we've been preparing this for this transition now for a decade, for over a decade, because we've been developing for the iPhone all this time. Right. And it's the same architecture, the same instruction sets. So a lot of our code, in fact, had already been ported to run on Apple Silicon okay. based processors. Right. Do you share a lot of code between your iOS apps and your Mac apps, or is it just product? We do. Okay. Yeah. All of our model code, we try to share as much as possible. And even some of our drawing code, the drawing code that can be platform independent, of like core graphics based, we try to share that code as much as possible. Obviously, we, we don't share the top level interface code, or at least uh, we hadn't until the advent of Swift UI, which now we're starting to do that as well. Mm. So yeah, it's been a, uh, in many ways, this transition was easier than any of those earlier ones because We already knew what we were building for. We were using the exact same tools. We didn't have to learn a new processor. In fact, we could just take take the code, rebuild it, and and run it. (laughs) Start doing some testing. Make sure it's just as easy as that, huh? And to that point, your your blog post announcing the Omni Productivity Suite being available for M1 and Mac and macOS Big Sur was out two days after the announcement. So I'm not sure if that was intended because you have access, or if it was just that easy, or maybe just both. But uh, definitely right off the announcement two days later, announcing the you know the support of M1 and Mac OS Big Sur. Yeah, well, in fact, we had our apps built and ready f- to try testing before we had any hardware to test on. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so even the DTK systems that were shipped out to developers this summer, before right. we had access to a DTK, we had a build that was ready to test on it, and we were just waiting for DTK to arrive. Mm. So you were moving faster than Apple yeah. then. <laughs> right Sometimes the we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> or at least in, in one narrow area. Right. Well, I think it, it less to their dismay, but more to their credit that they can, they can allow developers on the Mac platform to predict kind of where they're going because of iOS and iPadOS, all these things like because of their work on the, the different chips that sort of determine where they're going to go. So you can sort of predict and plan ahead because of that. Yeah, sometimes some of the moves that Apple makes are uh, a lot more clear in retrospect than they were when they were happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, like w- one of the examples that comes to mind is when Apple announced that they were working on WebKit, you know, they had Safari, and that their priority was to, more than being correct about what rendering a web page, they wanted to make sure that they never regressed in performance at all. And at the time I was thinking, what... Well, that seems kind of crazy. What if you've left out an important function like, I don't know, bold or whatever, right. and introducing bold is going to make the web browser slower, but you need it to be correct, right? Uh, 
all of that seemed clear to me and crazy <laughs> until uh, they announced the iPhone. And now it was really clear why they needed something that could not regress in performance, right? It right. needed to be able to perform well on that device or there was no reason to have it at all. Yeah, really. And in retrospect, in this case, though, they 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 showed their cards, right? Like WWDC, they announced, we're going <laughs> to, yeah. you know, this is a thing. This is going to be a thing. There's going to be some. And they give us tools. Which was pretty yeah. big, I assume, to get you ready. Yeah, we obviously we couldn't have done it without um, having a version of Xcode that could build now Mac apps for the new hardware, and so that was a big piece of uh, of getting ready. We could kind of guess, uh, seeing the writing on the wall, I guess, over the last decade as we saw the trajectory of how Apple's CPUs uh, were increasing their performance over time compared to what was happening with the Intel CPUs that were in the Macs. Right. Mm-hmm. We got some hindsight too. When we were on the call with Tim, we didn't have a hindsight. So in terms of hindsight, I mean, there's definitely been some delivery of M1 powered Macs in the hands of reviewers and yeah. you know enthusiasts, reviewers out YouTubers. there. And uh, one in particular is Rene Ritchie. He had done several different benchmarks that were well known to be describing. Now, obviously, this is you know paper specs, but it definitely like the M1 processor in these machines was just blowing the. <laughs> whatever's off of out of water yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean like there's it's just and even you know when you compare uh the mac mini to the macbook air or the macbook pro like they all perform very similar similarly more better than you know intel processors but having been i suppose down this road quite a while you know what is your perspective i suppose on intel power max and M1 Power Max, not so much in terms of like, oh, they're bad or good, but just the fact that like, what was the limitations that Intel put? Because one thing I understand with the M1 powered Max and this chip is that Apple can design a chip that is specific to their machine rather than an Intel chip, which is amazing, I'm sure in many regards, but not laser focused on what they're trying to achieve with a Mac mini or a MacBook Air or a MacBook Pro. Like that's the difference there is is an, an Intel chip that's sort of like general purpose that anybody could use to make a, a computer. Whereas M1 is the beginning of a long future of chips that Apple will make to make amazing machines that only Apple can make. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Uh, and it happens at several different layers in in the silicon <laughs> that, that happens. Right. We have the well, Apple has built this processor now that handles things like retain and release much more quickly than an Intel processor can. And that part of the reason they can do this is because they know what software is being built for their hardware. Mm-hmm. They can measure it, they can track it, and then they can say, well, let's make that thing, which is taking uh, you know, some percentage of every app's time, let's just optimize that as much as we can so that, <laughs> because we know it'll benefit every customer and every app. Mm-hmm. And so they can make that sort of uh, optimization directly there in, in the hardware they control. And uh, so that's certainly one place where we see a big benefit. Uh, and Intel wouldn't necessarily do that because they're not optimizing for Objective-C and Swift. They're, they're optimizing for uh, whatever workloads they're optimizing for, or maybe not optimizing right. for specific right. workloads. Generalizing, yeah. The general thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the system on a chip that we have here is not just about uh, the central cores and the instruction sets, but it's also about what the memory uh, management looks like and having this now the unified memory, which lets you share memory between uh, different, like the video core and the CPU and so on means that you save a lot of time that was previously going to copying that memory around into its own sort of local 
space. And that that's another place that, uh, because Apple is designing the whole system at top to bottom, they can make some huge uh, performance improvements. A lot of the software you create too is very visual. You know, you got a lot of graphical type software in terms of animations of movement and creating lists and combining lists and unfurling and graffling to use the <laughs> name in the, in my adjectives. Um, I could imagine that, you know, there's probably some limitations. What kind of limitations did you particularly hit when building for Intel? Were, were there noticeable or just, is it sort of hindsight now because you have an M1 powered Mac and you understand the lack of limitations now? Did you physically hit limitations in the Intel world that you're like, man, I just wish we can get past this. Well, to be clear, we were, we were actually pretty excited to move to the Intel world in the first place because Intel at that time had the, uh, the leading performance. Right. Sure. And so, uh, so when we did the transition from PowerPC to Intel, I mean, yes, that, uh, that system, uh, had to coordinate things from a lot more vendors and so on than when Apple was building PowerPC. But even the PowerPC was not just Apple. It was Apple and IBM. And there were there were compromises along the whole way. I feel like, yes, in retrospect now, it's easier to see those compromises as the compromises they were. And what we see now uh, is really a, an incredible system that is designed for the workload that it's trying to do. It's a lot more like, to go back to the 80s again, like the Atari 800, which had uh, a tiny 6502 CPU in it, but it could uh, you could play some amazing games on it because it also had a sound processor that was dedicated just to uh, spitting out certain types of sounds, and it had a graphics processor, uh, Antic Chip, and another one that was the raster processor. All of this system was designed uh, to coordinate together uh, to give you something that was much... Uh, <laughs> that was very advanced compared to other things that were just using the same processor, that same 6502. And what we see now with Apple Silicon is a similar sort of transition where having these different things working together from the uh, the GPU units to the machine learning units, uh, the high efficiency cores and the, uh, uh, you know, the both sets of cores, right? <laughs> those that perform strongly and those that use uh, less energy, that you can really build an incredible system that is more than the sum of its parts. When trying to monitor your increasingly complex architecture, you're probably wasting a ton of time jumping between data silos and dashboards. We all know the pain and New Relic wants to change that. New Relic gives you three products in one platform. First, you bring all your data from any source into the telemetry data platform. It's a schemaless time series database, so it runs super fast and it's fully managed, which means you don't have to lift a finger to scale it. You analyze and visualize that data in full stack observability, which has all the capabilities you need for monitoring and troubleshooting. You can follow an issue from metrics to events, to traces, to logs in a few clicks. Yep, only one place to go for troubleshooting. Then you can make it even easier with automated detection and incident intelligence. Their applied intelligence product analyzes your data and systems to make those key connections for you. And if there's any anomalies, it makes sure the alert goes to the right person and only the right person. Best of all, they're bucking the industry's love of complicated pricing to keep things super simple. And that means no more host-based pricing and no constant upsell for more functionality. But don't take their word for it. Go check this out for yourself. You can get one user and 100 gigs per month totally free forever. Check it out at newrelic.com. Again, newrelic.com.
take us back to when you had it all ready to go. You had the Xcode software tooling, right? You had it rebuilt for ARM and for Apple Silicon, and you're waiting for the hardware at that point, <laughs> right? You still aren't sure, like, is this going to be, like, a, a evolutionary, is this going to be a step improvement, right? Are we going to see, like, marginal improvements? Are we going to see massive improvements? And then you finally get some hardware, and you can actually run all your Omni suite of tools on Apple Silicon. Is it, I mean, in your blog post, you talk about silky smooth, and you can drag things, and, like, was it noticeably different? Like, two machines side by side, maybe, like, the previous generation MacBook, Pro 13 inch and then like this one is it noticeably different or is it just like I know it's noticeably different but is it massively different <laughs> so I've got to say when I first got the DTK you know one of the, the instructions that Apple gave developers was uh, not to benchmark the thing mm. and so I intentionally was trying not to pay very much attention to <laughs> what that performance was like and we get to the end of the process, and Apple contacts me and asks how things are going. And, uh, and then they ask me, you know, so what do you think of the performance? And I'm like, well, you know, I haven't been paying attention to that. <laughs> uh, and that was really when I started thinking about, well, how is this performance? And maybe now I, uh, you know, is it okay for me to measure? And they're like, sure, sure, try it out. And that's when, uh, when I started seeing that the time to render uh, graphics to the screen was so much faster than, than what we were used to on on Intel-based Macs. Say so that first note was like torture, wasn't it? It's like, here, put a kid in a candy store and say, by the way, don't look at any of the candy and surely don't touch it. It's like, <laughs> here's some brand new Apple Silicon hardware, but hey, don't see how fast it runs. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> that must have been like, come on, that's what I'm here for. Now, I, I have to say, I just got my first M1-powered Macs for real, right? Not the DTK stuff over the summer, but the mm -hmm. M1-powered Macs arrived yesterday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so I... Uh, of course, set them up, did some timing tests, and uh, and they're, of course, much faster than the DTK was. Um, wow. The DTK was already silky smooth and feeling great, and now we have something that's even better. So what I'm finding, you know, one of our apps takes about 10 minutes to build on an Intel Mac Pro, uh, MacBook Pro, the, uh, um, the latest one that you could get, uh -huh. uh, with maxed out with 32 gigabytes of RAM and so on. And... If when I pulled out the M1 Air and I tried doing the same build, it took five minutes and fifty seconds on the Air, not the Pro. That that was on the right on the Air. The Air is almost twice as fast, and the uh, Mini was even faster than that. It was five minutes forty four seconds, uh, mm -hmm. and it was consistently that. Then five minutes thirty six, five minutes thirty four. I ran each test three times just to see how things were going, and. The M1 Air actually gets a little bit slower because it gets hot, and then it has to slow itself down to right. stay Maintain within its thermal budgets since it doesn't have any fans in it. But it's amazing to me just how fast these things are. And so this morning, I actually told our team, "Yes, let's let's get one for each employee." <laughs> <It's>, nice. <laughs> there's never going to be a better uh, time to jump into this. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, I've been seeing these benchmarks like that. And it's interesting to hear. That the MacBook Air, the which, and so just to preface this and sort of set the stage, I'm sure almost everyone listening to this has at least heard some of this. But the M1, as it's been said, is going to be the worst of this new good world, so to speak, you know. And then the MacBook Air is the most efficient in terms of power consumption, not so much in terms of performance, but it's still very, very capable. And so to see it cut that build time in half with no fan, and you probably didn't burn your legs or burn your desk. 
you know, in the process is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, and I've got to tell you, I, uh, we then ran the test on a, I don't know whether Apple wants you to know this, on a Mac Pro, right? The, uh, oh boy. the biggest one that you can get, the $8,000 machine. Right. Uh, sorry, we don't have the biggest one you can get. We have the, <laughs> the one that has uh, 16 cores. Okay, still pretty big. And it's still pretty big, pretty beefy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not as fast as the M1-based MacBook Air in wow. terms of finishing, uh, building our app. So, Well, there's two sides of that then. Apple can be excited <laughs> or they can be like, ah. Oh, I think they would err on the, on the side of excitement because oh, it's yeah. their own. Well, it's the future. You know, yeah. And, but, you know, it might be bad for today's sales, unfortunately. So we can't help that. It's incredible. I, I mean, I can't wait to see what the Mac Pro looks like with uh, with Apple Silicon in processors in it. Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. your daily driver? Like what's your, your, your work machine? Is it a pro or you go for a laptop yourself? I use a mini actually. Oh, do you? Uh, and so now I'm using the, uh, the M1 mini. So you're already upgraded. I was going to ask you like, what are you waiting for? Like the iMac pro, the Mac pro, like which one are they going to upgrade next? But you're already set. You're on the M1 world. Yeah. I, I find that the, well, I really have on my desk here, one, two, three, four, five minis. <laughs> so it's, I don't really have room for five pros. <laughs> you got a cluster, a cluster of minis yeah. on your desk. I love it. What's the, what's the Robin like then, I suppose, to the native world? So some might be using Rosetta 2, some might be stuck in a different world. You're, you're fully native, you're a native universal app, as it said. What's that Robin like for you? I, I know you mentioned in terms of having the, you know, the TDK and the ease there, but more so the fact that you know for the last decade we've had Apple Silicon just in different platforms, iOS, iPad OS, et cetera. What's been that, that transition like been for you, I suppose, the, the road to that? So looking through our code base, we don't really do a lot that is architecture specific. I mean, we try to avoid it. Uh, one of the things about having moved from uh, one architecture to another over uh, the decades is that we you know, started to learn things like, oh, well, let's be careful about which order our bytes in? Are they big Indian code? Are they little Indian code? That, right. that kind of stuff. Um, or if we have something that does need to depend on that, like network communications, then uh, to be sure to use API that will say, okay, well, let's convert this host to network uh, for this particular size or whatever. So a lot of those changes we'd already made going like from PowerPC to Intel. Uh, some of the things that that we did have to design for and and sort of rebuild on Apple Silicon. And some of this that we actually had to do this summer because we hadn't uh, done it on, on the iPhone or iPad had to do with things like crash catching. Like if I if we have built a crash catcher into our apps that will report issues when our apps crash, much like what Apple has built in now, but we, we built it before Apple's existed. So uh, it will catch a crash, offer to uh, send email to us about it, and then the user can enter their details, and the email goes to us, and we can then categorize the crashes and reply to them directly, and so on. And so we wanted to get that system, of course, ported over to to running on Apple Silicon as well. And that work took a little bit longer. I would say that's more like um, that was about a day or so. <laughs> not too so it was not a big deal because, again, we already uh, we had learned the ARM instruction set by now. But are you a uh... Mostly Objective C, or is your code base? Have you been adopting Swift? Are you mostly just what is it all made of? Because it's been around for so long. I'm sure a lot of it's legacy, but yeah. So a lot of the older code is, of course, Objective C, and Objective C with uh, you know mixed in with just plain C. Yeah, that's, that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about Objective C is you can 
have plain C in it or mm-hmm. even dive down into assembly when you needed to for performance reasons. But uh, lately, over the last five years, I would say maybe 60 to 70% of our new code has been written in Swift. And we've also taken some of the old Objective-C code and rewritten it in Swift, or that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so on a day-to-day basis, I feel like we're working with Swift a lot more than we're working with Objective-C. But in terms of our code base, where we have you know, 27 years worth of Objective-C code lying around, uh, it might be still more like uh, 60% Objective-C at a guess. And you mentioned you're adopting some Swift UI. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I don't know how much you know about Swift UI, how much background I should give necessarily. Swift UI is designed to be cross-platform. It's kind of based around a uh, a function uh, reactive model similar to React in the web programming world. Okay. And rather than you describe what you're trying to do, more like you would describe for a web page uh, with HTML would do, instead of saying how to do it. Mm. So you're saying, here's a view, and I have some text in it, and I want this text to be aligned with this other text or whatever else. Um, so it's kind of a different programming model. It doesn't always work for everything, but for the things that it, uh, where it does work, it gives you a lot of flexibility around, uh, like you can switch between platforms, have the same code run everywhere. Um, so we've started using that now in our UI code as much as uh, as much as possible. Like again, there's some problems that it's not pr- ideal for, mm-hmm. and for those we can still dive back down to uh, the traditional AppKit or UIKit models of of drawing views to the screen or working with user input. But for things like the widgets that we just released in OmniFocus for iOS 14, all of that code is written in Swift UI. In fact, it has to, has to be. That's the way widgets are implemented. And once we finished it on iOS. We're like, okay, well, let's see about bringing these widgets to Mac and Big Sur. Mm-hmm. And we had a beta ready the next day <laughs> with those uh, nice. those new widgets in them. And it turns out we really didn't have to tweak them very much at all. As they were ready to go. So that's been an, an encouraging sign. And we've been rebuilding things like the outline in OmniFocus, the outline of tasks, using Swift UI so that we can have a real live editing outline um, instead of a model where you select something and then have an inspector where you're doing the, out- the editing separately. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at the moment, we're, we've been sort of redesigning and rebuilding OmniFocus and OmniGraffle uh, using these new SwiftUI components and looking forward to having much more powerful versions of our apps on the iPad and iPhone as a result. It's very cool stuff. So if you look down the road a bit, um, where do you think this goes? I mean, you can... You're in the scene, right? You're in the developer scene of, of Mac software. And you've been doing this a long time. And you see like, okay, M1. So we can all at least project and say there's probably going to be an M2. But <laughs> like, what does the future look like in your eyes of this M-powered Macintosh world, the Macs? And how does that play into Omni Group software and really your, your the future of your business? I'm sure they're tightly aligned. So it looks bright, but I'm curious what your perspective is on these things. Sure. So in the 90s, we had gotten pretty spoiled by uh, you know what's referred to as Moore's Law, right? where every year, everything was getting faster. Like every two years, speeds were tending to double. It's right. not the rate that we were going. And if, you know, when we looked at our development cycle, a lot of the products that we built, like OmniGraffle, uh, a major version of that might take about two years to build. And so when we were starting that process, 
we were expecting that the hardware that we would end up shipping on would be twice as fast as you know where we were starting. And obviously, we have to be careful. We want to run on existing shipping hardware as well. But there's there are things that you can plan to do that uh, that you know are possible on on faster hardware, like better animations and so on, or adopting some of the uh, the stuff that you mentioned earlier about our look and feel being matching the platform really well. That uh, might not make sense if you thought you were stuck on the same hardware that you had that day. <laughs> um, and then, of course, in the uh, the 2000s and 2010s, that petered out. We ran into limitations in the, the hardware, and we started trying to solve that problem by scaling out the processors to more and more cores. We didn't have single cores getting uh, faster, at least nearly, not nearly at the same pace, but we, uh, but we tried to pull things out of different problem sets. Um, that could work well with multiple cores. Well, I'm looking forward, I guess, looking ahead to the return of having cores getting faster and faster, individual cores. Um, I'm looking forward to knowing that we can build some things and that maybe today's hardware isn't capable of, but next year's will be. I like that. Bring in, bring bring in Moore's Law back. <laughs> bring it back to us. <laughs> I mean, I have to think at some point we'll we'll run into another limit. Yeah, but it's nice to have those limits relaxed for a bit. <laughs> and certainly, I didn't expect uh, that we would get processors that are as fast as these are right now. So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, that's that's actually my next question. But you sort of answered it was your excitement level. You know, having been, you know, since the next years, you know, forever essentially in terms of Apple's history. You know how excited you are for the speed at which this CPU is, this system on a chip uh, for the new Mac. Like I'm blown away by how fast they are. Like I, you know, you heard the benchmarks, you heard the the mentions during the keynotes, but seeing is believing. We said that with Tim, <laughs> even that seeing is going to be believing in terms of like actually having them in our hands, testing them out. I don't actually own one yet, so I haven't tested it, but I'm basing it on people I know and trust in the industry who do this day-to-day right so i mean this has got to be blowing you away in terms of like its speed it's oh absolutely so fast <laughs> yeah i i was skeptical too as i you know I, as i watched for example i saw the same uh video from renee ritchie that you mentioned earlier and yeah. like okay it, it works well for those benchmarks that's great i wonder how it does in xcode for real like let's get down to it and so that's why i ran those tests last night yeah I'm like what really? No. Okay, I've got to try this three times and not just once. Make sure it's not a fluke. And yeah, I'm blown away by how impressive these processors are already. And as you you noted, this is the slowest set of of Mac Apple Silicon processors that we're ever going to get. This is yeah. the first generation, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with, say, if there's an M1X or an M1Z or M, and then of course M2, M3. Right. What, what does the next sure. decade look like? Certainly the last decade has have a proven history that's been amazing with uh, the iPad performance and iPhone performance. Uh, what do you think you'll do with the time you get back? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have never run out of things to do with the time <laughs> <laughs> that I get back. Uh, I look forward yeah. to just moving faster on the, the stuff we're building. Yeah. Well, tell the folks uh, a little bit more about your tools, maybe even what's coming down on the pipeline for Omni Group, your suite of tools. You know, I'm sure we have listeners out there who are using Omni tools. We have other ones that probably haven't heard of Omni Group, or maybe they're uh, they're Mac users, but they're more casual. They haven't seen the productivity suite. Like, what's what's out there and what's next for Omni? 
where our focus is right now is is the thing I just mentioned, where we're looking at redesigning and rebuilding our apps using the latest technology instead of uh, you know some of the code that we've written that's currently in OmniGraffle is 20 years old now. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what happens as we rebuild some of this in SwiftUI uh, or just Swift in general. We have new versions of OmniFocus, OmniGraffle uh, that are... Well, I don't think I'm ready to pre-announce what, okay. where we're going with some of this stuff. Um, <laughs> well, I couldn't help but try. Just give us a peek over the horizon, as much as you can, but a peek. Whatever the peak might be for you. What I can say, uh, you know, I already mentioned that we're redoing the outline on the iPad. Sure. Right, right, right. Uh, be, being able to edit in places, uh, a feature that'll bring that experience to be much more like what the Mac experience has been like all along. I've also mentioned, I believe, in our roadmaps... Uh, for several years now that we're working on collaboration as a feature. So making it easier for people to edit things together in a live way. Well, they certainly have given you a reason to get rid of legacy code, which is often a, an angst, right? Do you want to get rid of it and delete it? Well, it serves its purpose, but yeah, if, if it, it ages out eventually or new hardware slash new software makes it somewhat obsolete or <laughs> better, you know, maybe not obsolete where it doesn't work, but more like it'd be better if you did, mm-hmm certainly give you a reason to rewrite legacy stuff yeah just going through and rebuilding all of the inspectors for example that's one of the projects that we're working on right now and it gives us the opportunity to rethink some of the decisions we made you know a decade ago and uh, based on the experience that we've had since then and the feedback that we've had from customers we can think of much better ways to build it this time so yeah very cool. Ken, is there anything we haven't asked you that you just you, you, you want to make sure we mention before we let you go? And then we didn't ask you that you're like, oh, man, can they, please ask me about that. <laughs> no, no, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Yeah. It's a great conversation. We wanted a, a Mac app developer's perspective on what Apple has done, and we appreciate you sharing that time to do it for us. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Changelog. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't heard yet, we have launched Changelog Plus Plus. It is our membership program that lets you get closer to the metal, remove the ads, make them disappear, as we say, and enjoy supporting us. It's the best way to directly support this show and our other podcasts here on Changelog.com. And if you've never been to Changelog.com, you should go there now. Again, join Changelog Plus Plus to directly support our work and make the ads disappear. Check it out at changelog.com slash plus plus. Of course, huge thanks to our partners who get it, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And thank you to you for listening. We appreciate you. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.